bad when you're out of breath, and that's like four steps. It's pretty, <laughs> it's a whole nother problem Chris has. Um, guys, I'm excited that my friend Dawn Jones is here today to share her soap story. And for those of you who might be new, um, we, when, we take, when we started this new um, way of studying God's word, it was, it was like a little, it was awesome slash a little uncomfortable for some of us who open pages, open wide open spaces like scare us. And so I love getting to bring my friends up here to share kind of how they have done it because everybody does it a little differently, right? Everybody has a different thing that God's showing them. So this week, my friend Don Jones is going to share. Um, tell us what day you're going to share. Day one. Hold on. We're going to just like, okay, now, there we go. Let's try that one more time. Okay. I'm going to do day one. Oh, look at that. Look <laughs> at that. That's better. Day one. Okay. And, um, well, I have to back up because we did this oh. last night. No, I'm not going to, okay. I'm going to do good. <laughs> so misbehave at night. Don't come at night. It's very bad. I'm very misbehaving. Um, one of the things that we were talking about was um, doing soap and doing this method is is really meaningful to us because... Dawn and her husband, Matt, are um, the point people at Rock Point Church for the family mission trip that goes to Belize every year. And you guys hear me talk about it all the time because it like transformed my family's life. Who else is gone? I see some of you. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the cool things we did a few years ago is tell them what we did. We started implementing with the kids. We did soap with the kids. <laughs> we, well, we tried. We, yeah, let's, <laughs> we, let's go backwards. We, it was a, we attempted that. We had that. four days to uh, teach Five-year-olds to 12-year-olds how to soap, but it was really cool, it like just so to see cool. their journals, and they may have just drawn pictures, but it was okay. It was really but neat. But it was, and then we, now we're here doing it here. Yeah, that was what was so cool. It's like here we were in this environment where it was crazy, and these little bitty children are drawing pictures and reciting verses out loud, and then we get in here, and we're like, oh, it's just neat how he mm. continues to be creative with us. So, okay, that, I had to tell you that, because that was just such a neat thing for us to think about, yeah. right? Um, okay, day one. So share one. with them what your title is for day one. Get ready. I'm, are y'all ready? Say it loudly with a bold voice. To be or not to be. Guys. <laughs> I always give her it's a hard time because she, she has the coolest accent in the world. And then she comes. Like, I'm like, I'm going to be behave. I'm going to behave. I'm not going to talk no. about it. And then she quotes Shakespeare. It's totally. I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> so read some more. <laughs> no. To be or not to be. I, I told her she needs to project. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It becomes a variety show, doesn't it? All right. So to be or not to be, day one, that was Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. So tell us which scripture stood out to you. Um, So remind them, which was at the very start of the verse, um, of verse 1. And then my title came from all the to be's, um, to be submissive, to be obedient, to be ready, um, the repetition of that. A lot of them. Wasn't there a lot in those first Mm -hmm. two verses? Um, observations besides that, that you saw the two B's, what other things did you observe? Okay. So, um, I got stuck on the remind them for a little while. Um, the first part where Paul was telling, you know, Titus to remind them and thought, well, what does that mean? What is them? Um, so I went to the blue letter Bible and it basically explained that in itself, them is signifying nothing more than again. Um, and you know, I, I know that in chapter two, he's just spent a whole chapter explaining to all the young and the old men and women what they should and shouldn't be doing. And then he says, remind them again of all these things. (laughs) Um, So I 
I just got stuck there of why is he repeating all these things again and telling Titus to remind them? And so the conclusion that I came up with was that he was he closed out Titus 2 in verse 11 and 12, where he talked about um, the grace of salvation has been passed to all people. And so then I looked at the tabis in a different way um, and thought, these tabis, it says, are to be extended to all people. He doesn't say they're to be extended to only believers. And so if we do not get these tabis in check, then we will be a stumbling block to the gospel and to others' salvation. Wow, right? I love that you brought that out because it is true. We see the word all people, the phrase all people. And so um, that, wow, stumbling block, that's convicting. What about your application? How did you apply that personally? So my application says, do I live daily dying to self, dying to my hurts and feelings of rejection by others because of my outspoken truth? Am I a stumbling block to others' salvation? Let me be just like Jesus. First um, Peter 2.23 is just a reminder to me of how Jesus sets the example of how to not be a stumbling block. It says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus as an example. Hmm, how about yeah. that? Um, share with us your prayer. Lord, I pray my actions and words will always point to you and that all people will know of your gift of salvation and I will not be a stumbling block to your work. Thank you. Thank my friend Dawn, who also recited Shakespeare and God's word on the same stage in that cool accent. All right, guys, open up your Bibles. We're gonna look at Titus 3. Well, like Dawn said last week, we learned all about godly living, didn't we? We got like this giant list. And I did. I found the same thing that she did. Whenever it said re remind them, I thought, well, guy, you just said it like five seconds ago. <laughs> how, why are we reminding them already? Um, well, last week we talked about how that's a developing thing, right? Godly character is a developing um, thing that we have encountered in our lives. If we allow the Lord to change us, we talked about um, saving and verses 11 through 14 of chapter two was all about like the heart of the whole letter, right? Which is Jesus. Um, and then we, we learned about how Titus was charged to step out. Well, this week um, you'll, oh, I brought a show and tell. I brought a couple show and tells. You're gonna, that'll keep everybody awake. Um, in your, if you, if you did your homework this week, you'll know that the lesson was titled Coverless Books. Well, I, I brought it so you could see it. It's my book. See, I wasn't, it was not an exaggeration. There is no cover left. Um, the, just a great visual example of God's love and mercy, right? Um, to have this idea in our lives that um, he loves us so much that we chew up books and, and we still get love and we still receive mercy. Well, this week, Paul is gonna take us on another journey. And, and this journey is going to be, which you guys covered it in your homework and studied it a lot over and over. And it's all about remembering. He's reminding them. He's reminding them that they need to remember how to live and that's the first couple verses. He's reminding them, too, to remember who they were and then to remember that he saved them. And then, of course, to remember why you even live the way you live. In eight verses, we get that much doctrine. It's 
It's pretty powerful, pretty heavy. Well, gospel living requires transformation. That's what I kind of kept going back to as I was reading this was like he talks about how we're supposed to be and then he goes right into a sentence about who we were and and then he talks about um, how Jesus is the only way to be transformed. And so I started thinking, you know, it really means that I'm becoming and we're becoming something, right? As we live our lives. I, I heard this a long time ago that you are always, every decision you make, you are moving toward God or are you moving away from God? That was, that was convicting to me. I'm like, every decision? Like what shoes I wear today? Every decision? <laughs> I think within reason. But honestly, am I becoming more like him? Um, every day when I wake up, am I, am I becoming more like him or less like him? Transformation is becoming something, becoming someone. John Ortberg says, the seasoned author and a preacher, and he says, the desire for transformation lies deep in every human heart. Think about it. Every person, regardless of what they say they believe, because everybody believes something, wants to be transformed. This is why we enter therapy, we join health clubs, we get into recovery groups, we read self-help books, we attend motivational seminars, right? We have New Year's resolutions, but the possibility of transformation is the essence of hope. Think about that. If you want to become, if you want to transform, if you're not satisfied with, with, with the you of, of verses th- verse 3, if you're not satisfied living in that um, human depravity that we're going to talk about in just a minute, but rather you want to move towards transformation, then the only thing you can have is hope that it could actually happen, Right? And our hope is Jesus. Cool. Seems simple. Well, look with me, if you would, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. We're going to start with Paul reminding Titus to tell them how to live. It's very specific. It's very clear how to live. I'm going to read it first, and then I want to, I want to share a thought with you. Maybe that might make you think a little differently about it. Verses 1 and 2 start with remind them, as Don pointed out, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Um, Guys, so, everybody good on that? Should we just scooch right past that? That's a big list. I'm like, Paul, ease up, brother. I mean, that's like two verses and it's not very many words and it's a lot of heavy, isn't it? A lot of heavy. Well, as I was looking at that, I thought, what are you trying to say to me? I, I, I understand that you want me to live a certain way, and I understand that you want me to remember to go back to this all the time. And, and then, then this weird thing happened. I went up in my, my son, who's away at college, he's 19, and he came home um, not too long ago. And so I went up in his room to get something, okay? Which, number one, he's a boy. Number two, he's just... He's a boy, so it's gross and kind of weird in there and everything. It's dark, and I'm opening up the blinds and trying to air it out and everything. And I look up on the wall, and I saw something, guys, and I'm not kidding. I hadn't thought about it. It's been on the wall for years, and I haven't thought about it in forever until I read these first two verses of Titus. And here's what it is. In 2012, my kid's 19 now. Remember, I don't do math, so that means he's, this was, I don't know how old he was, 12? Is that what that means? Something like that. Okay. Um, For those of you who are listening online, it's this framed thing, and it says the manifesto and promise of Braden Murphy. That's my kid, okay? So in 2012, his dad and some other dads and their sons went on this little weekend trip, and the decision was made that they were going to help their sons write a manifesto. And I'm like, what is that? That's like some fancy old-timey word. I don't even know what that means. So I looked it up. A manifesto is this. It's a written statement 
declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of the person who writes it. So in essence, what it is, is it's, it's this statement of like, this is who I'm becoming, okay? And this is what I want to live for. And then thirdly, this is what you can hold me to. This is what I'm becoming, this is what I'm living for, and this is what you hold me to. So imagine 12-year-old boys. You come up later and read it. It's pretty hilarious, but it's also awesome because I'm reading it and I haven't looked at it in years. And I walked in that room and I looked up at it and I said, God, you're so cool because all those things that he wrote down as a 12-year-old, I still see them in his life today. And so when I was thinking about these first few verses, I thought, Lord, this is what you're trying to tell us. We need a manifesto. We need to say that this is what we believe. This is who we are becoming. And this is what you can hold us to. And then he says, yeah, so I sort of totally gave you that in verses one and two. So when you hear these verses and we go through these things, there's seven things he demands of us, the seven markers of godly character. I want you to think about those things as, as your manifesto. As you as a believer, this is who you are to be, okay? Well, the first in, in, in verse one is that we're to respect authority. We're to respect authority. And he says, be submissive to the rulers in authority. Be submissive means you're gonna be obedient to them. That means, it doesn't mean you're not gonna disagree, okay? So let me be clear here. Paul's not saying you can't disagree with laws or lawmakers or leadership, right? Uh, disagreeing is fine. What's not fine is subverting government or disobeying authority within reason. Now, something we said yesterday, remember we were talking about slavery yesterday and that gets weird because we're like, dude, the slavery, that's not cool. It's okay. It was legal at the time. And so when you're thinking about these things, always remember everything is in the context of what, of, of, of God is always the over, over, over abiding umbrella of it all. So in other words, if, if there are commands from leadership or government or whatever that are in direct conflict with the laws and commands of God, yeah, obviously God wins out. But here he's talking about you are to be submissive and to be a rule and law follower. And you know why? Because this is who you're becoming, and this is what you live for, and this is what people hold you to. So if you go out and you're breaking laws, if you go out and you're being disobedient and you're, and, and you're, you're undoing the things that are, have been set in place because of law, what, what does that say about your walk with Jesus? What does that say about the people that want to follow you? So this was heavy. This was big because this is the thing too. Don pointed this out. Did you notice in verse two, he says, um, you're to be, okay, first one, you're to be obedient and ready for every good work. But in verse two, he's gonna go on to say, this is toward all people. So when he's talking about these things, he's not saying, hey guys, I just mean the ones that are Christians and that are really, like really good Christians. The ones that check all the boxes and do all the things right. He's not saying that, is he? All people, all authority. We respect authority. We're believers, we respect authority. Secondly, we're obedient. It's probably also in regard to the law and the government. Um, am I a lawbreaker? You know, think back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, Jesus says something that's kind of mind blowing because at the time the Roman government, Caesar was ruling and it was not, I mean, as you know, Jesus ends up on the cross because of all kinds of mess ups in the way that the law and the way that the, everything is taken care of in, in government and authority. But at the same time in Matthew 22, he says this, we're going to give Caesar what Caesar's do, right? Jesus says in the Bible, you are to pay taxes because that's what the law says. And we are obedient to the law. 
We are respecting authority. We are obedient. Thirdly, he says that we are eager to do good. We're eager to do good. You know what that means? That means we're ready. So think about this in verse, verse 16 of chapter one. Do you remember way back? Like you've slept a few nights since then, but remember this? Remember he's talking about false leaders and what did he say about false leaders in verse 16? He said, they are unfit for any good work. Isn't it interesting that this is directly opposite? We're to be eager to do good work. We're to be excited and ready to do those things. Fourthly, that we're not to insult or slander. We're not to insult or slander. Verse two, the ESV says, speak evil. You know, I look over that and I'm like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, come on, Paul, whatever. I don't know who these nasty people you were talking to were. And then, you know, don't, don't do that. Let me just tell you that. Don't, don't like talk back to Jesus about Paul because you know what then happens? Then you realize you do these things all the time, right? Does that ever happen to you? You're like, that's not about me. It must be about that other girl in my group. And then, and then you do something and you're like, oh, that. That's me. I hate saying this, but don't be known for for ugly words. Do you know Christians? Don't look around, don't point fingers, who are known for ugly words. Do you know people who who are known for tearing other people down by telling or talking or commenting? Do you know people, and by people I mean me sometimes, confessing, who, who sees something and someone does and they have a personal experience with it and then they see somebody that they love befriend this person and their first thought is, well, I gotta tear that girl down to this girl because I gotta make sure, I, make sure she knows all the things and, and it's not mine to tell, right? And it may be wrecking something that the Lord has planned that I'm not a part of. That, that was convicting to me. Don't insult, don't slander, don't speak evil. Um, that's who we're supposed to be, the people who don't do that. The fifth thing is we're to be peace seekers, not arguers. We're to be peace seekers. Verse verse two, he says, avoid quarreling. Again, I, I see that and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm just like the most peaceful peacekeeper there ever was. Well, I don't know about your Facebook feed, but mine doesn't always look like that. And I know a lot of people that claim to know Jesus as their savior who are known for being arguers. I don't want to be that person. Do you have those people? Do you have those people that you click the little box that says unfollow for 30 days or whatever? I'm like, yeah, I got to unfollow you, sister, because you're wrecking your testimony. Don't be an arguer, be a peace seeker. Sixth, he says we're to be big hearted. Are we gracious citizens and neighbors to who? To all people, not to the people I want. I am so good at being good to the people that I love, that are easy to love. You know who I'm really bad at being gracious and big hearted to? The hard to love ones, right? That's not what we're called to be. That's not what our manifesto should look like. And the seventh thing he says is we're to be courteous and humble. Again, there's no conditions. This is toward all people. These first two verses are so specific. They do fall on the heels of what we learned in Titus 2. But guys, obviously we need to hear them again because Paul says, remind them, meaning they need to be reminded. Remind them. Well, all of these things, all seven of these character traits are all in direct contrast to what you read in verse one. Go back, I mean, chapter one, go back and read it. Chapter one, verses 10 through 16, talk about false leaders. And this is why they are these things. They are bad because of this and this and this and this. And then he does this contrast in in chapter three. No coincidence. 
So I ask you, you know, who are you becoming? What is the manifesto you're living out? Are we remembering how to live or did we just take the Jesus card and say, well, I'm all good. I can be all these things because he, he, he covers me in grace and he forgives me for all of my sins. So I'm going to keep on doing it. I don't know, man, that was convicting for, for me. Well, verse three, he goes into, well, that, that was supposed to be the positive part. Verse three, he goes into the really dark stuff. And you're like, guy, Paul, chill, man. Verse three, this is who you were. This is what I love though. Do you love this about Paul? When Paul goes into this giant list of how bad we are, he doesn't say how bad you are. He says, us. You love that? Us. Verse three goes like this, for we... Again, Paul, Paul never forgets his sinful condition. He never, ever ignores it, and he doesn't consider it his identity. Isn't that interesting? I may maybe never forget my sinful um, history, but, but a lot of times I allow it to define who I am. I'm fearful of what you know about me or think about me because that's my identity. It's not true. So I love that Paul is so humble in that way. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I'm gonna stop for a second. Think about this. So when he says for we, the word for there is basically saying, um, I'm talking about how, so you treat all these people this certain way in verses one and two. Remember, I just said that like two seconds ago, Paul's saying, I just said this. This is how you're gonna be to all people for this is who you were. Don't forget who you were. I, I, I thought about, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big basketball fan and my, my team is doing really well this season. Guns up, anybody? Texas Tech, whatever. Um, one of the things I love about the, the, the coach, our coach, Coach Beard, they had an opportunity um, a month or so ago to play Duke. Okay, so if you follow college basketball, you're like, whoa, okay, that's, that's Duke and you're Texas Tech. Okay, that's the two different universes converging in New York City. And it was this cool moment because this is what he said to his team. Are you ready for this? He said, you play with a chip on your shoulder. You play like you know where you're from. You're from Lubbock, Texas. They're from Duke University. And so you walk in that gym and you play remembering who you are, who you were, and what brought you to this place. At first, when I heard that, I thought that was kind of negative because we always hear that chip on the shoulder thing like, oh, that's kind of, oh, that's negative. No, here's what's beautiful. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying the same thing. You need to look backward for a minute and remember who you were. And then you need to not camp out there. Don't hang out there. Don't make that your identity like I do a lot. But instead, remember that because there's power in that remembering, isn't there? Remember who you were. Paul gives us this giant um, catalog of this fallen sinful condition, doesn't he? And you know, Paul, this is kind of his jam. He does it all the time. He does it in Romans 1. He does it in 1 Corinthians 6. Last semester, we saw him do it in Ephesians 2. All this super uplifting information about who we are in the depravity of our sin. This is who you were. And, and, and let me just say this. This is Chris. This is not um, the Bible saying this, but I'm going to also say this. This is who you, who you were when sin took over your life, but this is who we, re, re, we go back to all the time, don't we? When we take our eyes off Jesus and we let the world tell us that this is what we want and this is how we want to live because we are still sinful, broken, fallen people. The difference is if you know Jesus, you are covered with grace and mercy and you can stand before the throne and you know where you're going to spend eternity. 
But we still struggle with this, don't we? We have, we, we, this didn't just turn our backs and we're done. We still have that chip on our shoulder. We still know who we are. Well, human depravity, great, great verse. We love this, so much fun. Let's all memorize it. He says this, I was foolish. So I trusted my own self. That's how I, 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 I translated that. I trusted Chris. I, I chose to try to control the things that only God could control. Anybody? Anybody go back to that from time to time? I was disobedient. I read that and thought I obeyed convenience and comfort. I try to be obedient to him, um, but sometimes it's not comfortable or easy. Let me re rephrase that. All the time being obedient to him is not comfortable or easy. And so I fall back to the disobedience. I just want to follow what I want to do. Well, I was led astray. I shifted blame and I justified sin. Anybody go back to that place sometimes? He says, this is who I was. I was um, foolish, disobedient, led astray. But then fourthly, I was a slave to the world. I was a slave to the world. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Paul, I love how he tells us, I was a slave to the world. This is who we were, but yet who does he identify himself as being a slave of now? Of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. I was a slave to the world. That means I relied on my feelings. I wanted to feel good. I wanted to look good. I wanted to have things. I wanted to dull the un unpleasant things. I wanted to join in with other people so that I could find identity in things and groups. And I wanted to find pleasure by buying things. What are the things that are the slave, that you're a slave to, that you go back to, that are your comfort places? You know, what are those things that for a minute it feels really, really good, and then two seconds after you've bought the shoes, two seconds after you ate the whole pizza, two seconds after you drank the bottle of wine, you immediately are like, it just expired. It's not even any good anymore. I, I have the things. We all have the things, don't we? Slave to the world. Fifthly, he says, we were angry and jealous. I was selfish and self-righteous. I was concerned with elevating myself. Remember, I am prone to taking other people down to elevate myself, if I'm being honest. Even if it looks real pretty and puts a bow on it and, and I have a nice smile about it, I still have that heart, that sinful heart sometimes, and I go back there. And the sixth thing he says, this is who we were, is I was hated and I, was, and I hated right back. And I thought, oh, I don't hate anybody. And then, you know, again, like I said, don't talk to him about something. Sometimes he shows you stuff and you're like, oh, wait, yeah. I realize I justify hating people back sometimes. Do you do that? Well, they deserve it. Well, you know what they're doing, God. You know what's happening here. I am justified in this. Well, there's, there's righteous anger, but nine times out of 10, what I'm trying to convince myself is righteous anger is just a hateful, sinful heart. I'm, I'm a pig down in the mud with the other pigs. Aren't you so glad you come to Bible study and I talk? <laughs> well, those things are a description of the human heart. Do you realize that? Like those are all moral evils. They're not physical things you do. Those are things that are in you, that are in your heart. We're all in it somewhere. Sometimes we don't completely let our lives be engulfed by that, but sometimes we dabble, amen? I know I do. Sometimes I dabble in that and I realize that then accumulates and it will eventually destroy me. This is who we were. This is what I want to be able to stand up here and say, that's who I was. I don't want to have to stand up here and say, that's who I was seven minutes ago. But I always wrestle with it, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that the minute you accept him, you are wiped clean. 
However, you have this heart. And so it is a constant renewal. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. It's a constant going to him and saying, Lord, I am, I am really pretty bad at number seven and number six, or I, God, I am not good at this. Well, there is some good news. I will tell you some good news. Um, remembering who you were can also be a great thing because God uses the remembering of who you were to develop the who you are to be. Gratitude is something that he develops in us, right? Once we've been saved and, and we've been rescued from that mess, we can have gratitude for how he's changed us, right? I can see, I do this all the time. Y'all are, you're probably so wondering right now, like how many personalities does she have in that head? But I do this all the time. Like I'll approach a situation and I'll, I'll stop for a minute and I'll pause and I'll go, hey God, I think I did that one right. Okay, like two years ago, Chris would have wrecked that. <laughs> But do you ever do that? Do you ever see, you actually experience and see yourself thinking or feeling something that nobody else except you and God know about and you realize that's different than who I was, right? And it's not you, no offense, you're pretty, it's great. It wasn't you that changed you. He changed you. So we get gratitude for being able to see how he's changed us. Another thing that we can get developed when we remember who we were is we develop humility that he alone changed us. Don't you love that? I love those moments where God shows me, hey, you know, offense, you're cute, but you're not good at being God. I'm really good at being God. I am God. And when I step back and let him do his God thing, it is amazing how I can see and humbly approach him and say, only you could do this. It was just so bad. Gratitude, humility. Thirdly, um, he develops in his kindness and compassion towards others. Have you got that? Have you experienced that? Have you, have you lived a life? Well, let me re rephrase. You have lived a life of sin and you have lived a life of experiences that God has purposefully allowed you to walk through. I'm sorry, but maybe it's time for you to go, Lord, I wanna be the person that walks alongside this sister who's walking in the shoes that I walked in. Four, it starts out the beginning of that verse three. Four, we ourselves were once. That means we speak of how to treat all people, those people who are still drowning in the deep end of this sinful nature that you recognize. Like you're changed, but don't forget, you've got a history, you've got a story that he wants to use. I wanna live a life of compassion toward others because I have been in this place. And, and, and another thing that he develops is he develops wisdom and awareness. I begin to see my pitfalls and weaknesses that I need to avoid. Do you guys feel that way sometimes? Like, don't you, you know this. This is something that's a terrible, painful truth to understand. There are places in my life in these six things and in places that are in between where I am weak. Where there's some places where I'm like, no, I'm pretty, I'm okay with that. But there's some places where I am weak and when things get bad or when I step away from the word or when I quit praying or I quit hanging out with my girls who tell me the truth, I kind of go back. Do you do that? Do you know the place? You're like, God, this is familiar. It's like putting on old shoes. I know exactly how these fit. This, this, the idea of being able to remember gives us the ability to, to see when we're falling back into the comfortable shoes. We're going back to who we were. We don't want to be that girl anymore. And lastly, it gives us faith and trust in a God that can transform any life. I have so many people, and I know you do too, in your life who, who haven't trusted Jesus. And maybe you're in this room. I don't know. 
Maybe that's you. But I'm going to tell you this. Because I can remember me and because I see where he brings me out of the dark places, I know he can change you. I know he can bring you around. I know he can. Even the darkest, worst possible lives, God can transform. I know he can. I know he can because he did it for me. Faith and trust. Those are things, remembering, having the chip on your shoulder, don't let that define you and don't camp out there and be that person because you're not that person anymore. But let him take it. Let him develop you in the midst of it. This is who you are. This is who you are with Jesus. That was who you were without him. Amen? Don't camp. Well, verse four through seven are big. They're huge. He says, remember that he saved you. Remember how to live, remember who you were, but mostly, most importantly, remember that he saved you. The depravity of everything we just talked about has a sentence. Do you know that? The depravity of all of those things has a sentence. And in Romans 6, 23, it's, it's, it's spelled out for us. The sentence for that sinful behavior is death. Well, we need a rescue, right? And so Paul is here to say, hey, guys, all this stuff, you can't keep being that person. You need to know him because he's the rescue. Jesus alone is the rescue. So verses 4 through 7, he's going to explain that in a very Paul-like way. Um, verse 4 goes like this. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going I'm to stop a little bit. He says, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, verse 5, he saved us. Best three words in the Bible? Pretty good, right? He saved us, verse five, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna stop before moving on to verse six because that's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about in one little piece, right? There was depravity. There was sinfulness. We needed a rescue. He sent the rescue. Paul knows the rescue. Paul's speaking of the rescue now. Verse four begins with a but God moment. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, but God, you, we talk about it all the time. If you work, well, let me put it this way. You're in North Texas, so you know. I mean, we're, we're in the buckle of the Bible belt, so you probably hear it a lot, but God, right? We all talk about those but God moments. In Ephesians, we studied one of the greatest ones, moments where uh, um, Paul says the exact same thing. All of this depravity is occurring, but God, and it's a transformation, it's a change. Well, here's, here's something interesting. As I was thinking through this and I was reading, I, I came across this idea that we as the people, uh, the heart of, of, of verse three, remember we said that's the sinful heart, that's what our heart is without Jesus. You know, you know what we, in choose of, instead of relying on the but gods, we rely on but, but I, but Chris, but me. Think about it. Do you do that? Do you rely more on that or do you rely more on the but God moments? Um, how about this? Like, I want to spend more time studying your word, Lord. I want to spend more time praying, but I am so busy, but I am so tired, <laughs> but I am so confused, but I'm so bored ever. I need to work through this really hard relationship, this really difficult thing that's happening. I need to work through it, but I don't do conflict well. How about this? I need to end a toxic relationship, but I don't like conflict, but I don't do conflict well. 
How about this? I need to forgive, but I don't want to face that other person or I don't want to admit my shortcomings. See, we, I think, I don't know, maybe you don't, but maybe this is just what I needed to hear. I live in a but I world. I am always spending my time spinning my wheels trying to figure out how I can control the things that God's going, sister, you are so out of control. Listen, own it. Let me control it. Instead of living in the verse three of, of this is who I am, this is who I am. Oh, but I can do this and I can read this book and I can follow this blog and I can do all these things and I can fix it. How about instead we say, okay, I surrender and I'm gonna let but God all over the place. Psalm 73, 26, I think I put them on the screen. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isaiah 48, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Jonah 2, 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Acts 3, 15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates in his own love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What if we replaced all the but eyes, all the, the excuses and oh, this is just the way he made me and all that kind of stuff. What if we replaced it with, but God is, is God. Like I am verse three and he is, but God. What if we actually bought that? What if we bought into this whole idea that we're trying to sell the world? That's what I thought when I read that. Well, verse four, he goes on to say, all of this goodness, all of this goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, verse five, he saved us, not because of what? Not because of works. You know what that means? That means not because um, you did all the things, not because you got baptized, not because um, you went to church a number of times, not because you went to Bible study and completed your homework, um, not because of all the things. He saved you because of one word, a savior. That's it. That's kind of freeing, isn't it? Because no offense, but my checklist is not always perfect. Is yours? If it is, you're lying in church, which is terrible. <laughs> he saved us in spite of us. He saved us in spite of verse three. Verse five continues and it says those three words, like I said, my very favorite, he saved us. It's been called the greatest verse in the Bible on, on doctrine of regeneration. And regeneration, all that is, is it's the new birth experienced by those who have repented of their sin and said, hey, I'm pretty bad. I'm pretty verse three, Lord, and I'm sorry, and I can never fix it. And the only way I can fix it is to accept your son who came and you sent to die for me. That's the only thing. That's what regeneration is. It's new birth experienced in the midst of all that because you have completely and exclusively believed in Jesus Christ. Well, um, verse five, you know, he saved us. He, I'm going to read it again. Just hear it one more time. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Remember all the things but according to his own mercy, his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur says this about verse five, love this, ready? He says this, these three words in English, he saved us, those simple words, you have the core of Christian faith. All of us who in here are really nervous about talking to people who are not believers because we don't have the Bible memorized, I have good news. Three words, he saved us, that's it. It's 
all about salvation. It's all about God saving sinners. John MacArthur goes on to say, the word saved has become a distinctly Christian term. Amen, right? We hear that all the time, very Jesus-y, okay. But in the Greek, the language, the original verb was sozo, which is translated as saved, but it had a different meaning than what you're thinking. The meaning was, it was a word to describe rescuing someone from danger, preserving them, preserving someone safe from harm, delivering them out of potential ruin or disaster, salvaging someone in the midst of death. Salvaging someone in the midst of death. Matthew uses that word a lot. Now, remember when there's the Greek, remember a lot of times they have the one word and it means a whole bunch of different things. I mean, excuse me, they have a lot of different words that mean essentially what we translate as one word. So we say saved. I say the same word for if you're drowning in in, in the lake and I reach in and save you, I physically save your life and breathe life back into you. That's the same thing as me saying you're saved by Jesus. Well, here's the beauty is there's different words in Greek, but Paul chooses this one to talk about salvation. That's cool. Just own it for a minute. In Matthew 8.25, the disciples were in the storm. Do you remember that? And so they started crying out, save us, Lord, we're perishing. They weren't saying, save our our hearts because we're sinful. No, they were saying, man, the boat is going down and we're going to die. You've got to get us out of the water. You're our only hope. That's the word. Isn't that weird? Cool. It's intentional. Spiritual salvation is not just... It's not just um, this spiritual deliverance. It's, it's, a, it's a full deliverance, a saving from something that is certain death. The verb speaks of rescuing someone in imminent danger or permanent um, serious disaster. Well, verse 5, he continues on. It's not because of our righteous works, like we said. None of the things, none of the rituals, none of the traditions. But instead, verse 5, he says it's a washing of regeneration and renewal. Those big words, and you're just like, I'll skip right past that. Give me more Jesus. Well, that is Jesus, and here's what it means. This is the only place, by the way, that Paul speaks of new birth. This is the only place that he uses these words. And when he talks about this, you know, he talks about being washed. He's not talking about baptism, which is a symbolic um, tradition or a ritual that you do, symbolic of what you believe. He's talking specifically about spiritual cleansing. In fact, you can jot this down for some light reading later. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, that goes all the way back to that idea, where, where there's a heart of stone that we have, and it's being replaced with his spirit. Okay, that's what we're talking about here. So when you see regeneration, think about this. Regeneration is removing filth Okay, removing it and then renewing it is replacing it with something new. Okay, removing the filth, removing the sin, but then being replaced with something new, which is the Holy Spirit. Okay, C.S. Lewis, I love this quote God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. Regeneration and renewal means Christianity is not about improvement, it's about transformation. You're not just the better version of verse three. You are new. Verse six, he goes on to say, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. And then verse seven, so that being justified, 
his grace, in his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are poured out richly in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He's probably referring at the time to the specific event at Pentecost and then the upper room reference to where um, the Holy Spirit came upon the new believers. But here's the cool part, okay? Here's the super cool part. Now that's every one of us. You didn't have to be in some room. Now it's every one of us. We accept Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit. They would have known about this event. So his reference to it would have meant something to them. Okay. What? They were saved. Why? Because of the kindness, goodness, love, and mercy of God. How? Because he removed the filth and he replaced it with the Holy Spirit once they believed. And so in seven, it just makes sense. Now they're justified by grace. Remember justified, that word we looked at last week? All that means is a transformation, a change in position has occurred. Something happened. And the cool thing is we're heirs according to the hope. Do you realize, do you notice that you are not mentioned here? It's not about your decision. It's about his decision. There's no mention of faith because the focus is solely on what he did for you. He did this for you. No matter what you choose, he did this for you. He died for all. It's an effect that we have, that we receive a gift. Do we need rescue? Do you have it? Have you received it? Do you live like it? I don't know. I'm just saying. We need to look in the mirror and ask that question, don't we? Well, verse eight is, is the last thing that he's calling Titus to remind everyone of, and it's to remember why you live the way you live. Why do you live this way? Verse eight, the saying is trustworthy. When, he, when you see that, the saying is trustworthy, that's used five times in the pastoral letter, so it's, it's common. It's a common saying at the time, and what it basically means is, hey, you can trust these words. This is trustworthy, okay? So he says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Seems simple, but let me, let me twist it and turn it just a touch and, and give you two ways to look at it, two things to think about. Here's why. You're going to live this way, and here's why you're going to live this way. If you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, if that's who you are, you, if you have eternal life, your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, then you can live a distinctly different life. You can live a different life. There's freedom in that, right? You're not in charge of the transformation. He is, so put it off on him and go, God, this is your problem. I'm a mess. Here I am. I'm your problem. Change me. That's the first part. I love that. When you're becoming more like him, you're becoming less like your old verse three self, right? That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. If someone doesn't know him as Savior, if someone living in your house or living near you or in your life, or maybe it's you, I don't know. Um, if someone doesn't know him and they don't have the security of eternal life through Jesus Christ, if they don't, then Paul's hope is that by seeing believers live this out, that they will be one to the idea that Jesus is the only way and he is who he says he is. Isn't that cool? It's like a double, it's like a double blessing. One, you get to live this life that's more like Jesus, less like your old self. Two, you get to show the world, the broken world who, who doesn't have the beauty of Jesus Christ in their lives, redeeming over and over all the places that you've been. You get to show them, hey guys, look at my life. This is who I am. Well, in closing, I want you to think about this. 12-year-old Braden Manifesto. 
you can come read it. It's actually hilarious. But it's beautiful, too, and it makes me tear up when I read it because I haven't thought about it in years, and I read it, and I thought, this is who he's becoming. Who are you becoming? And this is how he wants to live, even now, almost 20-year-old Braden. I'm like, yep, that's still him. Who do you want to be? How do you want to live? And these are things I can hold him to. What do you want to be held to? Titus 3 has a lot for us, guys. We're to remember a lot of things, but more than anything, we're to ask, who are we becoming? What is the life that we live for, and how can we be held to that? Will you choose to live this life? I I want to. Will you hold me accountable? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, Some of these words are so hard, and they're so convicting, and I'm the first to say that I am no good at so much of this. But the beauty is that you love me and use me in spite of me. That's a cool thing. I am the labradoodle that chews up the book covers and you look down on me and says, yeah, but I love you so much. And I'm extend mercy to you, even when you don't deserve it. God, thank you that you look on us that way. I pray that each woman in this room feels that, like it's palpable today, like that they understand that you love them so deeply, regardless of where they are in their journey, no matter if they're still like neck deep in verse three, God, no matter if they haven't even fully accepted you as their savior, Lord, you love them and you chase them and you brought them. Show them who you are. Remind them of why you came. Thank you so much that you love us enough to give us these hard words, God. In Jesus' name, amen.